foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist, author of Move Your DNA, and a bunch of other books about movement. This show is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? This is Move Your DNA Podcast, episode 96. I cannot believe it. My guest today is Gail Tolley, creator of Spinning Babies. And here's a little tidbit about me. The first paper I ever wrote in graduate school was this little beauty on vaginal expulsion mechanics of the second stage of labor. That's right. I share that with you only because I want you to know how much I really love the pelvis and the movement it facilitates, as well as how the rest of the body moves the pelvis. I'm excited to talk with her about pregnancy and fetal movement and all kinds of juicy stuff like that. But before we do, I'm going to answer one of your questions today, courtesy of our dynamic collective made up of soft star shoes, my Mayu outdoor boots, unshoes footwear, earth runners, minimal sandals, and Venn design. So today's question is from Sarah. Because of your work, my dream of hiking the Appalachian Trail may become a reality. I have two years until my 50th birthday and my planned hike. I have a rare disorder that has made, and she's putting in quotes, exercise, particularly challenging. So when I stumbled across your philosophy, I was hooked. In preparation for my hike, beyond increasing my distance, flexibility, and stamina, I've been reading books and blogs and listening to podcasts about the trail. I came across a podcast interview with a woman who used special braces to complete the Appalachian Trail. She was paralyzed from the hips down. And while talking about how the braces worked, she described walking as, quote, falling forward. What? I believe I remember you commenting on that before, but I couldn't remember where. Is this true? 
If not, why are professionals still using this explanation with patients? Please elaborate if you can. Okay, so I would say that, yes, most people walk by falling forward, which means if we were analyzing the gait of many, what we would find is a falling phase, a phase where one foot was on the ground and the next foot was about to be on the ground, but nothing was really controlling it. The body was kind of in free fall. And one of the things that makes that problematic is as you're pushing off one foot and you're about to land on the next foot because you're falling essentially on that front foot, should there be anything underneath that front foot unexpected like ice or a toy with wheels on it or the ground actually not being the shape that you expected? That that distance over which you are falling, like the larger that is, the more of your weight that's coming down in an uncontrolled manner when you land in a way that's not expected, that's where you know, something like a fall or a slip can happen. So do most people walk like that? Absolutely. Is that all walking? I would say no. So I just got back from teaching a dynamic aging retreat at Kripalu in Massachusetts, and we covered just this topic. This We practice so much of taking a step and, and really demonstrating that fall, that, that phase where you're landing, and it is a fall, but it's dampened by the knee, the, the knee of that landing leg. So that's why so many people, when they land, they kind of keep their knees bent all the time to absorb the, the weight. It's almost like they catch the falling of their body with their quadriceps. For those of you out there with achy knees, you might want to be looking at how much of your gait cycle includes this phase of falling. And what we did in class was practice the pelvic list. So for those of you who don't know that exercise, you can go look it up on my blog. You can find it in alignment snacks. You can find it in the knees and hips DVD in in every one of my books. I think almost any of them are going to have the pelvic list and the pelvic list shows you how, even though you've left one leg and are about to land on the other, that the work is still being done in that back leg where the outside of that hip is kind of belaying you down. So while you have maybe the same period of time where you're only on one foot, there is no fall phase or you can over time really work to close that fall phase so that you're never landing in an out-of-control fashion. Because of course, an out-of-control fashion of walking would only work in a place where almost everywhere you walk has been previously cleaned up, right? So now we're talking about being flat and level and groomed. It's why so many of us are are unprepared for a change in shape and size and why we need signs out there saying, you know, caution, texture is about to change and slipperiness is about to change because we're not we're we are not practiced in really being aware of our environment because it's all been pre-tidied for us. We also sit a copious amount of time and we've worn these shoes with heels on it. So it's created a particular geometry where that group of people walks by falling and and can negotiate well. The environmental pressure has never been one that creates a gate without falling. So again, that is something that you can train. But I don't I think that people, you know, if as they're describing it, use that one because they've seen it used elsewhere right so if someone says hey walking is falling and if you read it on a in a physics lab you know paperwork 
then it just kind of assumes a oh this is a thing and it and it is a thing but it isn't the only thing so anyway hopefully that helps and good luck on the trail so thank you to sarah and also thank you to the dynamic collective these companies are making it easier for me to answer your questions as well as making it easier for you and i to live in our body you can find their websites and more about Venn Design, Soft Star Shoes, My Mayu, Unshoes, Earth Runners by heading to the show notes on nutritiousmovement.com. Click on listen, click on podcast transcripts. Lastly, before I bring on Gail, friends, I'm headed to the Bay Area, California. In April, I'm doing two public events. Thursday, April 5th, 1 to 4 p.m., Donna Gamarkagard and I are leading a two and a half hour hike on gorgeous land in Pescadero, California. Donaga is a wildlife tracker, regenerative rancher, and author of Donagan. I interviewed her a few podcast episodes ago, if you want to listen. We are going to learn how to track animals. Like, I'm not going to help you track animals. She's going to help you track animals. But I will be focusing on breaking down how movement is the catalyst. So we can kind of, in a very movie or DNA way, show really the relationship between movement and getting food. If you like nature, moving, moving in nature, join us. April 6th to 8th, I'm leading a dynamic aging retreat at 1440, which is a new retreat center in Scotts Valley. There's not very many spaces left. We had a full house in Kripalu, and again, it was amazing. We had 150 bodies who... It was crazy that we, I had everyone stand on one leg at the beginning and it was like looking out at the ocean. And after just a few hours on their first day, they all stood on one leg using some of that pelvic list. And we had created a wider base of support with our feet and done some correctives and talked about positioning. And boom, it was like stone. It was beautiful. It was so visually different before and after. So if you're interested in something like that, Dynamic aging, simple exercises for improving strength and confident movement through a texture-rich world. We'll spend eight hours of class time inside and out on a beautiful redwood-covered property learning how to tend to our bodies in a sustainable way. I'd love to see you there, and you can register at 1440.org. There's a link to both events in the show notes, and you can also find more information on my live events link on the calendar on nutritiousmovement.com. Gail Tully is my guest today. Gail is the creator of Spinning Babies, a childbirth approach focusing on baby's position and rotation in the birth process. Gail is a published author and a midwife who trains nurses, midwives, doulas, and childbirth educators in a new birth paradigm. Spinning Babies has been online since 2002, now on Facebook, and giving free information for parents and providers at spinningbabies.com. Gail, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you, Katie. It's wonderful to be with you. We I, had a little experience a few years ago, and I'm happy to be back. I know. It's such a nice time. Yeah. You know, I work, as you know, I did a lot of female pelvic health. That was my graduate work and female birthing mechanics. Mm. Here's an interesting mm. story. My first huh. graduate school paper was titled something like Vaginal Expulsion Mechanics, The, the <laughs> Physics of Second Stage delivery. Ooh, I want to read that. That's that's right up my alley, so to speak. The title was the best writing. (laughs) That was the first time I started to consider biomechanics, which is this thing 
I was studying now at the graduate level outside of sports, really, and outside, you know, to be like, hey, if there's an optimal way to pitch a ball, you know, if there's a way to manage all the forces to get the ball to go where you want it, has anyone looked at the forces during pregnancy? I have no idea how I ended up on the pelvis, but it became a love. And so Mm. I came to your work. Because, I mean, I, it was just one of those social media connections where so much of what I was doing was talking about, hey, you know, you can be doing some things with your body before pregnancy, maybe even during pregnancy, and maybe even during labor that's going to affect the, the mobility and the strength that you have going on. And someone was like, check out Spinning Babies. Mm. I fell in love with your work. I want to talk about your work today in the context of... Well, you can talk about it however you want. The context that I'm trying to really pull out is things are more movable and malleable than we're constantly told. And we make so many decisions Ooh. based on sedentary models, right? Oh, this is a good topic. It's, a, it's your topic. And so you really bring, you have so much more experience in the field, so to speak, meaning you've, you've tended to and facilitated movement during this time. For me, it's so much more theoretical. For you, it is a tangible thing. You've used your hands. You've used others' legs. Like You're in there. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of allow others virtually to embody or hear your very mm-hmm. important message. So we're going to talk. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about spinning babies. So before I do that, though, what do you love about the work that you do? <laughs> Ah, to be given a great cosmic mission as a very humble person that was unschooled in the immensity of this work. I am the opposite of you, Katie, in that you are a well-educated scientist, and I am someone who walked into this from the grassroots, observed without training, and learned from the mother and baby what they were doing, and then listen to people talk about it, whether that was the midwives, the nurses, the doctors, that really the mothers themselves, then went to the literature and the research, then went to other professionals. And in that way, I was able to see birth with a different lens. I didn't have any categories put into my head on how to think about it or what was dangerous, what was safe. You know, I learned from home birth midwives that were really spontaneously emerging out of a need that society had during the 70s and 80s. And so I learned really from observations, very Montessorian type of thing. When Maria Montessori, the great educator, wanted to have an assistant, she went through even Piaget and all these highly educated people, but she picked the janitor's daughter because the janitor's daughter didn't already have sort of neuro ruts in their head on how to think and what to assume. And that's how I learned about birth. And I had a question in my mind on, you know, from being with women who wanted to have a natural birth, who were motivated, who had great energy and great hope. And yet some of these women, not the majority, but some had difficult births and felt like, what did I do wrong? And I thought, wow, they've got a great attitude. They've done the same things that the other women did. For all practical purposes, why wouldn't birth be much the same for them? So I asked the question, how can we help birth be easier when someone's got the intention for natural birth? And that led from one discovery to 
the next and really crossing outside of the birth field into other professions that were body related helped me connect some dots. So I was reading your bio and spinning babies kind of like the goal of it is to present this new birth paradigm. But how do you explain or describe that paradigm, this new paradigm? Three easy words have come to me in the last year, Katie. Physiology before force. Mm. If we turn to physiology, we are awakening the innate ability of the body. We have in our human perspective, naturally, a very mechanical view. And in the childbirth education, even in the obstetrical books, even in midwifery, there's a bit of an idea. If people think about it, they go, well, of course, I don't really believe that. But really, what, how it's presented, it's like getting a basketball through a basketball hoop. <laughs> and right. if, if the ball's a little bit big, well, let's give it a little more push. You know, and if we can't get the ball through the basketball hoop, we'll just bypass it. Maybe we'll cut open the hoop. And it's, it's, it's like we're adding force. There's something called the three Ps, the passenger, that's the baby, the passage, that's the pelvis, and the pressures, that's the uterine contraction. And the idea is to make as much pressure as, as safe uh, right up to the edge of safety to try to force the baby or the passenger through the pelvis. and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not really how the body works. The body has got the ability to respond, but our sedentary lifestyle has reduced that mobility within the tissues and within the joints, and we can bring it back. You know, it's a spectrum. It's not an either-or. We can help someone move from a, a stiffer, less mobile, less ideal birth situation across the spectrum towards the easier side. For some people, that's as simple as a single technique. And for other people, they have to work at it every day, day after day to overcome some event. Now, what are they trying to overcome? We live in gravity and we have sudden stops or sometimes a twist during a a sudden stop. So think about someone's moving along They bump into the edge of something. The inside of their body continues to go. Like if you are in a a little car accident, you're driving along, you hit the curb, the seatbelt holds your shoulder back, but your uterus continues, if you have a uterus, continues to go in that trajectory. And that can pull on the ligaments and the support tissues that support and surround the uterus. That way, uh, and then the jolt of it can sometimes then leave the uterus in that twist. So it's like taking a water balloon and twisting it a little bit in the middle. It makes a little neck shape. And the fascia, the connective tissue, can sort of thicken or freeze. Not freeze like exactly, but, you know, like thicken or hold that shocked space. Stiffen, maybe. Yeah, stiffen. The fibers thicken up, and now the baby says, oh, well, there's a speed bump. I was going to put the back of my head down by the cervix, but, you know, there's this ligament that's twisted over there. Or uh, It's really interesting, too, because as I came up with this idea of I think there's something that, there that's twisted, then I learned from the body workers that, yes, indeed, 
the uterus is like a big air balloon with ropes in it, as Carol Phillips describes in her work. One of the things that I would like to contribute to as far as those who are wanting to have a vaginal birth or a natural, I mean, really any birth at all, yeah. is this idea that, you know, that natural birth, like it just seems like it's just natural. You should be able to do it, which I think then, as you said, when things don't go the way that someone had intended or hoped that they went, then they can kind of go, what did I do wrong? So I want to really modify that message to say, Birth is natural, yes, in in a very natural context, meaning that their context is is really everything. And so, mm. so much of this natural birthing process is supported or it, it came to be in this very natural context, meaning everything surrounding a woman and her birth would also be a certain way, which in many cases it is not any longer. So it's really pulling those out. And I, I think that that's one of those things is sedentarism mm-hmm. and or a lack of movement. And so we're kind of going, well, this birth is, you know, birth can be this natural biological thing, but also so is a, an abundant amount of, of movement or a way that you're using your body. And then to go back to what you were saying about this idea of, a, I've never heard the basketball through a hoop. I've heard more like, a couch going through an upstairs apartment doorway at the same time, you know, where you're like bending and rotating and it's long and awkward. You know, that brings in that image of trying to get a couch through a rounded doorframe. Yeah. Is about flexion or extension of the head because right. the head isn't round. It's a little right. bit longer. So that's a good, that's a good picture. Well, it adds, it, it makes it a little bit more complex. If you're just going to shove a basketball, I just know that I just push down, you know, hard, hard, yeah, to push down. Right? but the baby isn't just pushing out. It's, it's rotating through and flexing and nodding its head, meaning it's not a fixed mass going through a fixed mass. So now we have our first we have our first nod, if you will, if you like the pun. We have our first nod to sedentarism where the model is the baby is sedentary and so is the hoop. Mm. When the hoop is made up of parts with joints, that the hoop can actually change its shape. Mm-hmm. Then we go one other step to what you're talking about, which I believe is is saying that your uterus, either beforehand or during when it it becomes an environment for something else, all that that body, your body, and thus your uterus and all of the other parts have been through, that kind of sets the shape to that environment, that hoop, which is also Mm -hmm. not as permanently fixed as we set it to be in the simple model of birth, right? Like, I think it, it comes down to There's just a very simple model, whether the mother's receiving it or sometimes people who work in birth get this very static model, three pieces, Mm -hmm. all of them fixed. And then the only thing that a mother can control then, so to speak, is how hard she can bear down. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. How hard does she bear down or somebody pushes on her uterus right? or somebody gives her a drug to make the uterus work harder? So that that becomes the only movement that she has agency over essentially in that model. Mm, So we're trying mm -hmm, to increase agency mm -hmm. and say, you actually, you facilitate many more movements before and during Mm. labor. And that's what your work is, right? 
Yes, everything from the birth positions that match the angle of the baby's head to where the baby is waiting in the pelvis. For some, for some babies, they're still high when pushing begins, and some babies are well low in the pelvis already. Is that birthing position of the baby or of the mother in that case? Of the mother. The, the birth giver's position. Mm-hmm. And then, so we're looking at the baby's position in pregnancy as a mirror of the space available in the uterus. Mm-hmm. So, the, a, yeah. you know, like I used to talk about posture. Oh, my goodness. Let's back it up. So we used to think in the 90s, way back in the 90s, with the wonderful work of optimal fetal positioning by Gene Sutton, that the pregnant person's posture could influence the baby's position. And I believe at that time that was true. (laughs) And it is somewhat true to this day. And then, and I'll tell you why I think it changed. So that sitting up and letting the uterus, letting the abdomen be a hammock for the baby and let the uterus come forward would let the baby's back swing forward because the back is heavier. Okay, that's that's posture. You taught us alignment is more than posture. So that was intriguing because now we get into function of the body. And what I found around 2005 is maternal positioning or the positioning of the pregnant person during the pregnancy wasn't any longer enough. And Maybe this mm. is from the low thyroid epidemic, something metabolic, something shifting in our... We have a more sedentary lifestyle. We have more time in the car, more time on couches than ever before. Quite a bit more than the 70s, that's for sure. For sure, yeah. And so we're seeing a change. So what I brought in is let's continue with good posture, and I'd like to learn more about your alignment And then let's add some activities. And there are two categories of activities that parents can do themselves. One is increase the range of motion of the joints. And we do that with daily activities, walking, stretching, maybe a gentle yoga sequence, or a nice stretching thing like um, hands and knees and undulating the spine breathing deeply. Those are all very important. It's surprising. I would like to bring back the importance of deep breathing to pregnancy preparation because it connects the mind and body together through the, through the vagal nerves. And so we have increasing those joints around the, not just in the pelvis, but all over in the shoulders and the neck and the Ossiput and getting our body functional. But because we live in gravity and we have sudden stops, because we've been sedentary or worn high heels or sat in cars or whatever we nat you know, we naturally do, not naturally to the species, but naturally to our civilization. Yeah, culturally do. Culturally do is nobody's fault, but combine that with gravity, and some of us end up in situations where it's hard to give birth. And, you know, other things with dietary and which providers we pick and and on and on. But there's more than three variables. So what we can add is a static stretch or passive stretch, you know, uh, activities. And that's where we get into techniques on the Spinning Babies website. I've called them myofascial releases, but they're a little bit unique to dynamic body balancing and some of the more gentle versions of static stretch where a person lays very specifically on the edge of a firm bed uh, held by a helper that keeps them safe from falling 
and their their shoulders and hips are stacked. You can see this in sideline release. The leg, the top leg, as they're laying on their side, their top leg comes up and over and gently hangs off the edge of the bed while their helper holds that hip back. The hips are stacked. And the weight of the leg puts a passive stretch into the muscles for half of the pelvis. Now that stretch for about two minutes or longer tells the brain, make these muscles longer. And they, the, the leg, it seems like it melts. It just relaxes. It, it hangs a little lower and you're done. Then you switch over to the other side and do both legs so that there's more symmetry. Now, for a short period of time, you've made more room in the pelvis. People are more comfortable in pregnancy or in birth. The baby doesn't have to push back stiff muscles. They're Suddenly the muscles soften and are supple and the baby can rotate as it rotates like a key unlocking a door through the pelvis to come out the bottom of the pelvis. The muscles, the pelvic floor muscles and all around supporting the baby are all lengthened, softened and open easier. Sideline release is my favorite of all of your moves. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, that is our strap stretch but done in a completely passive, more gravity-assisted way. It's when, like, we would do it, and if anyone's taken yoga, imagine putting a strap around your leg, lifting it up towards the ceiling. Better yet than imagining it. Just go do it right now, listeners. Put a strap around. <laughs> you know, when you're laying around. on your, is this the one when you're laying on the mat and you put the strap over your foot? Yes, put yes. the strap over your foot, and then you bring it across the midline of the body. And, and... It's, it's, it's on, like that on, it's like that even more so. side. And even yes. more so, because if you had sure. to do self-care and you didn't have a helper, you could do the stretch, stretch in three locations and then do it standing sure. and, and get all the way to tree pose, right? That's all on that spectrum. But for sideline release, it gets, it really, Katie, it gets deeper into the pelvic floor and everything. It is deeper because now the leg, instead of being straight up and down where you can't feel the weight of the leg, when you stack it on your side as you do, now the weight of the leg is more. The torque that's created by the weight of the leg is much greater. So the pull, that leg is is pulling on the hips and the fascia that ends up connecting to the sacrum. So you're, yeah. you're not only yeah. stretching the leg, you're, you're actually pulling the sacrum backwards away from the front of the pelvis so you have more birthing space. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you're actually creating a tension that ends up the back of the pelvis, the size of it, if you imagine like a bowl is dictated by where the sacrum is. So as the sacrum gets pulled posteriorly, the size of your basketball hoop changes a little bit. So it's a beautiful, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful exercise, but also something else you said, you know, again, we go back to this sedentary, simple model. We think that we're only like all the, cliches about birth it's like put a watermelon in your nose you know what i mean mm, like it's mm, it's all mm. this like giant thing in a small space that's what we keep focusing on and less so is that the baby and the mother the birther you're not only dealing with an object space issue you're dealing with a tension issue you there's some things you can do about space but they have I mean, there's a fixed limit to the space. Like, you're not going to go from putting a watermelon into a nose versus putting a watermelon into a basketball hoop. The amount of space that you have to play with is pretty small. The amount of tension you have to play with is much, much greater, meaning 
you have a lot more agency over releasing those tensions. The capacity for tension reduction is much greater than your capacity to wildly increase your space. Mm, That's beautiful. So, well, here's my question. When do I start spinning my baby? Like, 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 okay. (laughs) Okay. So now the answer to that question is always now. And right. The Ooh. the range is that some people don't need to spin their baby, but everybody can have increased comfort, suppleness, and body function. I don't think I've met too many people that that don't benefit <laughs> from those things. Right, right. But so before pregnancy, if we're if we're functioning better, we're going to have an easier first trimester. We're going to have easier easier digestion and elimination. Right. So then it's the second trimester that physically determines the baby's position. The baby may not be head down yet, but it is the pregnant person's positions and behaviors in gravity during the second trimester that is found to have more results of how the baby's lined up in the third trimester, which is when finally at the end of the third trimester is when the doctors and midwives are noticing baby's position and wondering if it's going to affect birth. And they give the advice of, well, babies can turn at any time. Whoops, some babies can turn at any time. So how do we know who needs help? And we, we have invitations to act, invitations to add more what I call, well, not just me, but body balancing. You know, the sideline, I, d- I did want to mention the sideline release comes from the work of Dr. Carol Phillips, a chiropractor who was told about it through an obstetrician who had observed it by chance, saw a posterior baby rotate. The baby was facing forward and not coming out. And the mother rolled over and her leg went over the edge of the bed. And the baby rotated and came out right away. And Fortunately, the doctor was standing there. It doesn't always work that fast, but it certainly can. And that's why spinning babies is getting so popular with the nurses and the midwives around the world. The spinning babies exercises, they're something that really are, they're just using your body differently, relaxing your body. So I could be, I could be spinning my babies before I even intend to have one. Yes, right. You're making a functioning, balanced body. Right. And unwinding maybe some of those corkscrews yes. in my uterus that you were talking yes. about ahead of time. So like I always say, every, to ad nauseum, like movement is facilitating so many of your biological functions that it might behoove many out there to pay attention to some of those kinks before they want to call on them. You know what I mean? So it, it gives you more options. It's like, right. it's like, yes, it's true. You could wait and see. And maybe the baby will be head down. Maybe the baby will be anterior or flexed and curled up in the smallest diameter to fit. And if not, maybe one or two techniques will fix it, you know, so to speak. Mm. But if not, wouldn't it be nice to have started earlier so you have more options? Well, you know, people have different opinions. Well, that's true. That's true of everything, though. You mm-hmm. know, I, I'll teach someone who's 60 and I was like, I wish I knew this when I was 20. You know, it's like I feel like movement is movement is a hard thing to change because we just are so our tendencies to sedentarism run strong. And certainly in the moment, we're always like, I wish I had done this earlier. So maybe go check out. Spinning babies, where where can people go find more? See some of your moves? Like, what's the best way? Mo- movement is so video dependent. Is, are, do you have videos that people can go check out? <laughs> Not so much yet. Okay. 
Well, we do have the Spinning Babies Parent Class video. It's a download from Vimeo.com. You can also find it on the SpinningBabies.com website. And that one shows how to do sideline release with, with your partner and or helper. It shows forward leaning inversion, which helps some of the cervical ligaments so that there's lots of room for the baby's head and also makes dilation easier. And a gentle shifting of the uterus, the Montiata of the tradition, the Mexican tradition with the rebozo, and standing sacral release, which helps release the sacrum. So it can back out of the way of the baby. And all these things can be started. You know, I would say when you do daily exercises and do some of these techniques from 30 weeks on, people are having dramatically noticeably easier births in higher numbers. Not everybody will, but I'm pretty happy if 80% of people can address 80% of their, their situations to have an easier, more comfortable birth. And we do hear dramatic uh, results. And some people will only hear about this in labor or just a few mm-hmm. days before labor. And many of them are having improvements too, maybe 80, 80% is pretty, that's a pretty, I'm pretty confident to say 80%, might be 90% if you start early, might be higher. I don't know. We're, we do have people who are interested in research. So we'll have to do this again in a couple more years and have the results. I have a question for you. I'm not sure if you know the answer. When people get manual rotations, meaning yeah. like when their baby is not positioned in the way that it's decided upon, like when, what stage, what week are manual rotations usually happening? Okay. So there's two kinds of manual rotations. And typically when the baby is breech head up and sometimes sideways, they'll do it too. Now sideways, I have a technique that works 19 out of 20 times in 24 hours. Parents can do it themselves. Go to spinning babies, look up baby position, sideways, transverse lie. If your baby's sideways after 30 weeks, this is a technique to use. If your baby's sideways at 24 weeks, just do the balancing. That's pretty normal. But after 37 to 40 weeks, people are are doing uh, the forward leaning version seven to 14 times a day. And the next day or 36 hours later, or the next time they go to the doctor, their baby's head down and the doctors are like, wow, how, don't even tell me how this happened. That's the usual response. The doctor says, don't even tell me how this happened. But they <laughs> I was on my aerial silks. I was doing aerial <laughs> silk inversions, right? Okay. <laughs> but breech is not, you know, you can do the same thing for breech baby, which is baby's hips are lower than the head. Mm. The, they're, the, the baby's hips are going to come out before the baby's head comes out. And that can be a safe birth, but it can also be a complicated birth so that doctors and midwives in America today are trying to avoid vaginal breech births, which is sad, but because, you know, one or two in a hundred are, are very complicated, then they rather do cesareans for all of them. You know, you could get 10% breech births needing somebody extremely skilled to help. And of those extremely skilled people, you can still run into one mm. in a hundred. That's pretty, pretty sketchy, you know. But most of those babies, you, you can't tell the difference between them at two years old. You, you know, a, a researcher who's observing the child development would have no idea that that child had a difficult birth. So they're all recovered for most of them. So then the doctor turns that baby, some midwives do it too, at say 36 weeks to make that baby be head down. Now that's called an external cephalic version. 
And we have a doctor midwife team down in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, who are telling people with breech babies at that time in their pregnancy, the last month, to do the spinning babies activities. I call the three sisters of balance, the rebozo, sifting, montiata, the forward leaning inversion, and the sideline release, to do them every day for that week and then come back. And if the baby's still breached, they'll turn the babies manually through the abdomen with their hands. And they're finding that there's many more babies that are head down, or if the baby isn't head down, that turning the baby manual is much easier mm. than if they didn't do those techniques. Because they're taking, as you say, they're taking those roadblocks, those speed bumps out of the path of the baby. Do you know Dr. Eden Fromberg? Yes. She's an OBGYN. Yes. And she was she was telling me in, in an some instances where she was doing manual rotations that, you know, with her anatomy and and also just that hands-on ability of assessing, she said she was almost always working around the, a very tense psoas major, right, which is going uh-huh. to significantly mm-hmm. just reduce the pliabilities of the the case that the baby is in, which is the uterus. And so just by freeing up some tension and creating mm-hmm. more mobility in them, you create more space for the baby then to move. Yes. You really are the yes. environment. Don't forget the tension. Don't forget the yes. tensions that you bring to the table. Yeah, making space is what it's all about because it's not about a baby with a personality problem. Why won't this baby turn? Stubborn, stubborn kids. There's another way of talking about manual rotation is that the baby's facing forward and you're laid into the birth and the cervix is dilating and the head is just not fitting through the bottom of the pelvis. And there's an expert named Catherine Oz. Her last name is Oz. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. She's a wizard. And she teaches about reaching in and turning the baby's head like you're, like you're rotating the head with your fingertips. Hmm. And it's done very late in labor when the cervix is, is pretty much open. And she the great researcher that she is on this topic is saying she does spinning babies techniques that she learned from the website before she has the mother do that before she's willing to turn the baby's head because it's so much easier if you've made that space first. And, and she teaches other doctors to do this technique. It's, she didn't come up with the technique. It's been around, but she's teaching the value of it to reduce cesareans. But now what we're doing is we're just crossing the borders between body work and birth, between midwifery and obstetricians. And that's that's one of the gifts of spinning babies is that we're getting everybody together on behalf of parents and babies to make this becoming human easier. Well, movement is multidisciplinary. You know what I mean? Mm, like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we are in such a sedentary culture that again, those signs of movement malnutrition, mm. like the, the fact that that movement is the big piece, I think that so many disciplines can embrace that to go, okay, I can I can consider movement being an issue. And just once again, if you were to if I were to make a t-shirt for this episode for everyone <laughs> listening, this idea that less tension equals more space. Mm. So I think that we're used to thinking of a space of the side of the room. But imagine your room had pliable walls. And when I pushed on it, I got more space. That's what the body is. It is not a rigid body. Yes. You make more space, the greater your capacity is 
to deform when forces are applied to you. Like that's what we're doing. And we can prove that as any parent who's had more than one child vaginally. (laughs) The first baby's got this molded head and the second baby comes out with basically either very little molding, you know, compared to their first sibling. And because the pelvis is more mobile. Hmm. Now, we've seen large babies' heads come out without molding, you know, and it's the third or fourth baby. Why? Because how the, the pelvic outlet's supposed to be like 13 centimeters across, and you can have a baby whose head is like 14 inches around come out of the pelvis. The first one's molded quite a bit. The second one a little bit less. Then you see babies with large heads coming out with no molding. What's going on? That sacrum is moving. It's what you did your first paper on, Katie. That sacrum is just moving out of the way in a reflective response that can be felt by the anybody who is standing and supporting a birthing person can put their hand on the back of the sacrum and feel the big bulge of the sacrum. And the doula and the midwives even sometimes think, That's the baby's head pushing the bones out. No, that's the sacrum doing its reflective action to back up. And so we are moving. We're mobile. Breath is the first, you know, the first mobilization of the body. And our daily movement is, takes that further, you know, throughout the whole body. What's your most important takeaway? I would say that the pelvic, size is not as important as the baby's position because flexion aims the crown of the head through the pelvis and now baby has more movement and more ability to control their own movement to assist the birth they fit the pelvis better they move together it's a peristolic experience i guess you know if i were holding up a couch (laughs) to the doorway of my upstairs apartment at the end of a stairwell, it looks like it just won't fit through. Like if my yeah. if my understanding is of I'm just going to push it through, it's like it's not going to fit. But if I can see it from another perspective, which is, no, the couch is going to be rotating. And there's two other people here lifting and moving things around, then I can see the possibility. So I feel like what Spinning Babies is really doing is saying, the model of movement during birth is not nuanced enough, and we're making decisions based on an oversimplified model. Hallelujah. Yep. We're making oh, yeah. it a mechanical event of adding pressure when the physiology is waiting for us to notice that the size of the door frame can expand. Right. And and also that it's not a couch, that it's a couch <laughs> that's got bendy parts and muscles. And so I think that also... My simplified model right now is there's nothing really that's saying what the baby is. It's all a uterus just pushing it out, right? Where, you know, I've got video of my kid moving to start coming out. You know what I mean? Like that, that when everything else was still, you could see the squirming action. Yeah. So that we don't even have models to say that. That babies are active partners. Right, right, right. We're saying that the head is flexing and nodding like it's being pushed as it goes through. And that is to a certain point. But there is no perspective to say, you know, is there anything that we're doing that's influencing the 
what the baby is doing to get itself through. Even more agency than we are really even working with yet. A whole nother show. We will talk about this probably in 60 years from now <laughs> when it is more evident. But until then, we will age dynamically and move oh. and do what we can with making the models more complex, but making the perspective larger. Open your mind, open your pelvis. I'm waiting for your book That's called takeaway. Dynamic Pregnancy. That'll be... Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Gail... I just said I wanted to move more, not sit down and write another book. Jeez. Hey, I hear you. <sighs> okay, well, I write books and do videos, <laughs> but at the end of the day, people love working with live teachers, which is why we have live teachers out there. You have live teachers as well. Is that correct? Like, can I go to someone to get help with the exercises? Oh, thank you. We are expanding that. We have six beautiful trainers around the world right now, and we need more than six. And we're, so we have this progressive and various different ways of expanding that's going on right now. Last year, we started the Spinning Babies Aware Practitioner. So the massage therapist, chiropractor, body worker who does hands-on care for pregnancy, who is looking for a physiology before force approach, no force, they're, they're ethically deciding that unless they're specially trained for it, they're not trying to rotate the baby or manipulate the baby, but rather help parents create space. That's a Spinning Babies Aware practitioner. We have a listing on our website that's just getting started. We have another workshop in May in St. Paul and in May in San Diego, both in May for Spinning Babies Aware practitioners. And, and midwives and doulas are also taking that so they have better hands-on care. They have to have taken a Spinning Babies Workshop to get on the listing, twice so they're integrating the paradigm so then the childbirth educators want to do that too for one-to-one -one parent education or small group parent education so this april we have the spinning baby certified parent educator program beginning in saint paul um we have it again in saint paul in july in brazil sao paulo brazil in september and boston massachusetts october and in europe we're still looking for the venue in europe for november so the parent educator will learn how to do a three-hour preparation for parents in these techniques that we talked about today, and it will be a supplement to a longer childbirth education program that of any, so any childbirth educator of any method can use the spinning babies as a supplement, and we'll, we'll give them the license to teach it in our way and um, use the name in their promotion. Then in a couple of years, I'll expand for providers to be spinning babies trainers again, but I have some homework to do before I open it up. A <laughs> little bit at a time. We'll put links to everything, your website, your Vimeo, these events in our show notes. And Gail, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your perspective. Katie, thank you for all that you've done. You've expanded me so much. You've taught me so much. And in fact, your recent, well, both of your recent books, but your recent book about getting older and moving is just so exciting. I love it because now I'm, I'm in your audience there. <laughs> well, you're dynamic. Like we're all, you, you are definitely on the move. So keep it going. Thank you, Katie. And, you know, continue your work. It's so important. It's so great. And it's so supportive. Thank you for being this bridge. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, before I go, I'm going to answer one more question. These questions are brought to you by our Dynamic Collective. 
Today, I am highlighting Soft Star Shoes. These are minimal shoes handmade in Oregon, possibly by elves. When I'm done recording this, I'm about to head out into the snow, cozy in my Soft Star Phoenix boots. You will find Soft Star on all of my shoe lists on my blog. I like them that much. Our whole family wears them. They're great. Okay, here's our second question. Okay, this is funny. This is a second question from Sarah. Sarah, well done. I appreciate your perseverance. You never get any answers if you don't ask any questions. So again, just to remind you, this is a question from a potential through hiker. Here's her question. I have noticed that most of the hikers use two poles. I also know that you have spoken about how your body learns to walk with these poles instead of supporting itself. I believe you are describing working with a woman who used a cane at the time. If I get out there and walk regularly in my minimal shoes, I wear Vibram's five fingers, will I need these poles for the Appalachian Trail? Is it to balance the pack or to provide support to bodies used to sedentarism? Should I be practicing with these poles? My gut instinct is to avoid the poles because I am able to walk this terrain. We already live in the Blue Ridge Mountains near the trail in Virginia, but I haven't done any serious climbs yet, so maybe some science can provide guidance. Okay, I like this question. So first of all, the bit that I think you're remembering is from an earlier podcast episode where it was recorded from a live event where my co-authors of Dynamic Aging were speaking at a live event. And one of them was recalling this time when she was doing the pelvic list exercise. She was not someone who used a cane. She was doing a pelvic list exercise and was struggling to do it and had asked if she could hold onto the wall to do it. Or she said, I'm going to go hold onto the wall. And I had pointed out that, that there was another way of breaking it down so that she wasn't training to now use her arms with her leg because I knew it was her intention to not go towards a cane. So that's, that is a separate phenomenon. What you do in an exercise class in a very controlled environment to what might be necessary for negotiating, I'll say vigorous terrain, meaning lots of texture, but also lots of weight. I assume you'll be carrying a pack and also over a long period of time. So you're used to the terrain now, which is fantastic. But one of the things I like to point out as you go longer and longer distances, it's not really a repetition or more repetitions of you using the same parts. As you fatigue your body, as you go longer, you begin to recruit new body parts that only are called upon when you actually move, you know, all day long, which is a phenomenon that most have not experienced and why you will see me teaching many more, you know, 20 mile walks, 16 mile hikes in our retreats because it's I can talk about it and talk about it, but it's all very theoretical until you yourself push yourself to do something like all day movement like you're about to do. So that being said, let me answer some of your questions. What is the purpose of the poles? The poles are there. So if you look down at your feet, if everyone can, if you drew a circle that kind of trace the outside of your feet, but also connected them. So it'd be kind of like a, a rectangle oval shape. That's your base of support. If you put one hand in a, a cane or a walking stick, then you would trace a circle that picked up 
the tip of the cane as well as both of your feet. You see how now you have a, a larger base of support. When you put two poles down, then your base of support is the size of the circle that goes around and picks up your feet and the tips of both poles. So it does increase your base of support. And also, you know, we talked earlier in that first question about falling. When you go onto one leg, the tendency to fall is also to the right and to the left due to weakness, kind of like kind of falling out. Like if everyone tried to step on one foot and hold it there for a long time, you're not going to see your ankle wobble front to back. You're going to see it wobble right to left. So you have kind of a lot of instability to the right and to the left. And when you load that with a heavy backpack, now the, the, the weight of the unstable thing is more. Your weight's higher, closer to your head because our backpacks aren't down by our legs. So that little wobble to the right loaded with 20 or 30 pounds can now go faster and farther. So having a pole on that side is what helps center your backpack. Now, that being said, can you train your body to do that? Absolutely. And so I would recommend for all of you out there, if you want a training tip, put on your backpack, your hiking backpack, and do your pelvic list exercises there. Because then that slight wobble to the right or to the left You'll now feel the magnitude of what it will be when you are fully loaded. That's my little training tip from me to you. So try that so that you are actually doing your pelvic list to the weight that you'll need to carry. And it's still in a nice controlled environment. You're unshod. You're, you know, on a block or a stack of books in your home. You don't have to worry about falling, you know, off a log or in a river or anything like that. Then the next piece, though, becomes you are moving all day long. So another thing that poles do is they allow some of that push off as you're moving forward, right? You're just, you're climbing up, which means you're pushing down with your legs when you're going up, you're moving forward, which means you're pushing back with your legs as you go forward. So your legs are solely responsible for that. You're going to be adding a lot more miles, a lot more days than you've ever done before, which is what makes a through hike such a challenge. It's a capacity of movement that we've never, ever experienced. And so it allows you to share some of that work with your arms. And so in the end, poles could absolutely create a more positive experience as well as make finishing more feasible. Now, that all being said, I don't think that you need to take out the poles and do everything with the poles. The poles could be that you pull them out maybe randomly. So maybe start training a little bit with your poles. You can, when you're fatigued, you can be like, okay, this is where I'm going to pull out my poles and really watch my form and then add this pole as kind of like a pseudo leg, right? It's starting to operate kind of like a leg and, and as well as gets that little bit of extra balance. So maybe if your balancing muscles are like, we're done, it's like, great, I've got these poles so we can go on. So yes, I think that they're an absolutely wonderful tool when you're doing something so outside of the box. And even if you don't use them, that's fine, but you have them. And if you've trained a little bit with them, you now are more likely to, to finish this amazing event. So that would be my feedback. Thank you for asking that question. I hope many people go, oh, I see. I can see a little clarity and maybe figure out the rest of any separate questions for themselves. Okay, if you have a question, please write to me at podcast at nutritiousmovement.com and perhaps you will hear your question 
on an upcoming episode of Move Your DNA, or perhaps you'll hear two. Okay, again, thank you to our sponsors. For more information on them or me, head over to nutritiousmovement.com and check it out. Find a book or $5 movement video that would serve you best and start changing how you move today. You can learn something new about movement most days by checking in on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Just search Nutritious Movement. Again, if you want to leave a question for a future episode, email podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps other listeners find their way to move your DNA. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 